Hey guys, this is Slow Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I wanted to let you guys know about the first Mises event of 2024. On February 17th, we will be returning to beautiful Tampa, Florida for an event dedicated to inflation, causes, consequences, and the cure. While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every time they visit the grocery store. The state and its media lapdogs try to blame inflation on corporate greed, but the true source of inflation is the Federal Reserve and the banking system. We're going to be tackling this issue with a great lineup of speakers, including Joseph Salerno, Patrick Newman, and our new Mises president, the great Tom DeLorenzo. Uh, we have a special code for Radio Rothbard viewers for a 15% discount. That's uh, Rothbard24. And you can uh, find more about this event at Mises.org slash Tampa 2024. Hey guys, this is Slow Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and we've got another great offer for Radio Rothbard listeners. We have a free book that we want to send directly to your doorstep. If you are a fan of this show, you have no doubt heard us discuss Murray Rothbard's classic Anatomy of the State his dive into the mechanics of the state as we know it, what the state fears, what its greatest threats are. It is one of the all-time best Rothbard reads, a personal favorite of both myself and Ryan. You can get your free copy as a Radio Rothbard listener by visiting Mises.org slash RothPodFree. That's R-O-T-H-P-O-D free. You can also find the link in our show notes. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin, executive editor with the Mises Institute. And with me is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And this week, we've also brought on Peter St. Ange, an economist with the Heritage Foundation. And we're going to talk a bit this time about why the national debt actually matters now. It, uh, we, we know you've been hearing for decades that it was going to be a big problem, the national debt. And, uh, but if you were following that since the early 90s is really the last time people really started talking about it uh, in earnest. Maybe you noticed that actually the, the economy did not crash and the United States did not cease to exist and the standard of living did not even go down. Uh, so what, what's the real issue? Why are we talking about the national debt now? Uh, it turns out there are real reasons for that. It's different this time, but <laughs> in, a, in a bad way. It's not different this time as in, well, the, the bad stuff doesn't matter, as we're always being told by uh, Wall Street guys and people like Paul Krugman. No, it is different now because of interest rates and because of the sheer volume of debt uh, things are very different when we talk about the national debt in the year 2023 and just generally post-COVID uh, in general. And why that is, we'll explain to you right now with uh, this episode of Radio Rothbard. And to get into it, I think we can just talk a little bit more, uh, Peter, about why people also got the impression that debt doesn't matter. And I think one issue is that, well, uh, debt was essentially free. The, the huge deficits, adding another trillion dollars to the debt. Well, when the interest rates you pay on it, by, and by you I mean the federal government, when the interest they're paying is 1% or less, 
that's just not very much when your uh, entire tax revenues might be three, four, five trillion dollars. And oh, well, was okay, we have to pay 0.5% on this $20 trillion bill, uh, fine, it's, it's not a big deal. We can easily handle that so long as uh, GDP keeps growing at a certain level. But once the situation we're now looking at is that, well, now we're looking at a 10-year treasury is up to 4%. Well, that's, that's a tripling or more of where it was, really more like five, six times where it was a few years ago. So that's a very different situation that really adds up. Uh, but before we get into that, talk, talking about that a little bit more, the other issue that you brought up in a recent article that you wrote for us, which was called, uh, and check it out, we'll link to it in the description, Sovereign Debt is Eating the World. You note that another reason people, especially the experts, people who know about uh, the world economy, um, one reason they think it's no big deal is because of Japan. And Japan's had mounting debt, uh, huge deficits, and it just doesn't seem to have been a big problem there. So uh, why, why should we, why can't we just do what Japan is doing and have 20 years of really sedate, uh, a sedate economy that keeps chugging along and even though all the fundamentals are wrong? Why, why can't we just recreate that experience? And is, is Japan facing any troubles now or are, still things, are things still fine? Right. So I think that sort of the key here is that um, debt building up is a cumulative process. And like a lot of things in economics, it's going to be completely painless, right? So you can take that poison for years and years and nothing's going to happen. And in fact, it can be a lot of fun, right? So this is true in inflation, uh, you know, printing money. It doesn't initially show up as inflation. It shows up as like free money. You know, you can get paid to sit on the couch like during COVID. Uh, there's a lot of really cool things that come out of inflation early on and the effects of the poison come much later. And that's true in debt as well. So it's great fun being able to invade Afghanistan, and not have to pay for it. Of course, you know, it costs what over two trillion dollars, the entire Afghanistan adventure. Uh, but from the perspective of voters, none of that stuff is real because it all just gets stacked on the debt. Uh, a phrase I've used for this is that, um, you know, the government has the ability to finance crises. Okay, we have a crisis industrial complex. The Fed is the main instrument of that, but essentially they can start wars, they can, uh, you know, declare disasters, they can take respiratory diseases and pretend that they're world ending, uh, the entire global warming crisis industry. And they can float all of these things because the debt is invisible to voters. And this has been frustrating for a long time, I think, from fiscal conservatives where they might sit down and, you know, try to explain all of these costs to voters, uh, you know, 500 billion here, a couple trillion there. And it doesn't really resonate because voters sort of don't believe it's real. Uh, we saw that with these student loans where, you know, those were handing out free money to rich people. Uh, student loans are one of the biggest assets that the federal government has. Of course, it's deeply in debt, but it does have some assets, such as uh, the buildings that <laughs> there ain't much. But at any rate, uh, student loans was essentially the biggest asset there. And so Biden gets up and you know, declares that he's going to take this national patrimony, these trillions of dollars that all Americans own, and he's just going to hand it out to rich people. And everybody was like, mm, doesn't seem fair, but OK. Uh, and so you know, voters have very little sense of crisis. And the problem here is that, like inflation, it's a cumulative process, right? So you're enjoying the poison, 
the voters see all these things as sort of abstract numbers. Uh, 100 billion to Ukraine, eh, it doesn't seem fair, but again, I mean, this isn't actually going to cost me. And there comes a point where the camel's uh, back breaks, where you pile on so much debt that investors start to get skittish. Now, the important thing I think to highlight here is that it's not a question of can the U.S. government pay back its debts. Okay, there's a very large number that the U.S. government can squeeze out of American voters. The issue is, will voters at some point be interested in walking away from that debt? Right, so we saw that in Greece during the financial crisis, the European uh, sovereign debt crisis back in 2009, where you had a political party in Greece and they suggested defaulting on Greece's enormous debt. Now, the thing is that Greece at that time was paying less in interest payments on its national debt. Okay, they were paying less than the U.S. was at that time. In other words, it was not a crisis level of spending. What happened, however, is that the Greek government started to uh, impose what they called austerity, which really meant just uh, it meant a slowing of the rate that the government increases spending. Uh, so they had to start saying no to people, to various interest groups, sort of various um, government welfare programs. That started Greek voters thinking, oh, wait a minute, this debt actually is real. It's not imaginary. And at that point, you had a political party who came in and said, hey, I got a really cool idea. You guys want to make a quick $100 billion? We're just going to walk away from it. The people who own debt are inevitably going to be unsympathetic. Right? If you take the U.S. debt, for example, a huge chunk of it is owned by the Chinese, uh, a huge chunk of it is owned by Wall Street. Okay, those are, if, if your task as like a public relations manager is to try to protect those two groups, you've got a hard slog ahead of you. So there is some point where the debt gets large enough that some future Trump or Vivek comes in and says, I got a fantastic idea. We're going to walk away from the 33 trillion. You guys are going to make a quick 33 trillion dollars, which comes out to several hundred thousand per American household. You issue new debt to cover the widows and orphans, so to cover Social Security, pension funds, you know, whatever, um, whatever portions of the federal debt are held by politically sympathetic groups, and you ditch the rest of them. Okay, so that ditch scenario, okay, uh, cutting off, shafting the unsympathetic investors, that is the scenario that is ultimately going to determine the risk level for the marginal buyer of federal debt. Right? And so what we're seeing now, which we haven't seen in a long time, is that the level, the, the, the interest rates that the government has to pay uh, on its debt, they're now incorporating a certain, or they appear to be incorporating, this is one of the big debates, a certain risk element for the possibility of default, either a soft default in the form of the government tolerating higher inflation for longer, which you know, it essentially melts the debt like an ice cube, uh, or a hard default, where the government literally goes through the list of uh, who's holding uh, treasury bonds and essentially cuts off all of the unsympathetic players. So in either case, the simple prospect of that sort of thing being possible, and we know it's possible because it, happened all, it happens all the time, uh, roughly every 18 months a country uh, defaults on its national debt, as over the past 20 years, so it does happen all the time, and if that starts to feel like reality uh, to investors in American federal debt, then we can see a situation where you start to get these uh, very rapid uh, rises in the amount of interest that the federal government has to pay for its new debt, 
that can then become a snowball effect. So the rising interest payments start to eat the rest of the budget. Uh, the government will find it politically difficult to raise taxes. Uh, and you know, at that point, um, you can have sort of a runaway process on debt. Yeah, and I think part of the issue there and, and part of the reason that Japan was able to deal with that for so long also was that savings rates were much higher there. And the right. issue here is you can only sell as much debt as people are willing to buy. And so if you have a country where tons of people are willing to buy up your debt as a, as a matter of savings and investment, that's one issue. But the question is, uh, <laughs> are Americans and foreigners and anybody going to keep buying up when you already have out there $33 trillion in U.S. debt? How many, of, how many people right. are going to keep buying it? And their buying decision, as you note, is affected by, oh, how much risk of default is in there? Now, I would say at this moment, they're still not calculating a high degree of risk in there, but it's right. higher than it was, and that's pushing up right. um, the the interest rate. And then just the other issue of there's so much of it, there's only so much you can buy. And that drives up right. then demand as well. And and I think maybe to illustrate this, I mean, maybe you can remark a little bit on the uh, the Treasury auction the other day where all the headlines were... Uh, the Fed tried to sell a bunch of, well, Treasury tried to sell a bunch of new debt, and things did not go very well. Uh, what happened there, and what tells us about the current state of selling uh, U.S. debt? Yeah, so it was a nearly failed Treasury auction. Uh, about a quarter of it went to the primary dealers, which are basically the resellers who, you know, flog whatever's left over. Uh, that's an exceptionally high level. Uh, some of the other sort of antenna internal metrics on the auction suggest that there was very little appetite uh, for the debt. And what seems to be driving it is foreigners. Uh, so foreigners, you know, a year ago, they accounted for about three quarters of the debt purchases of federal debt. They're already down to 60%. That's down, I believe, um, it's down about five points on the month, which that, that, that's pretty much a wholesale route. Uh, foreigners are not buying U.S. debt, and there's a number of reasons for that. One of them is the slowing global economy. One of them is the absolutely idiotic choice that the uh, U.S. government made to seize Russia's central bank dollars as punishment for invading Ukraine. That put the entire world on notice that the U.S. government is going to be going through your policies with a fine-tooth comb, and if they don't like what you're doing, then you know they could potentially seize the reserve asset of your banking system, right? So the reason we did it in Russia is that we were hoping to set off a bank collapse. And, you know, ultimately, uh, the reason you do that is that you hope that Mr. Putin gets hung up uh, on a lamppost. Uh, th that's, you know, everybody in the game knows exactly that this was the purpose of that. Uh, and then subsequently, you know, the U.S. government has been pushing on whether it's environmental or labor or LGBT even. They've been having this uh, fight with uh, little Uganda which, you know, most of Africa, in fact, most of the world is not on board with the woke stuff. Uh, they are extraordinarily, shockingly, perhaps, uh, socially conservative in their views on such things. And so if, at this point, the U.S. government is weaponizing the dollar, not only against those who invade their neighbors, which most countries, admittedly, are not interested in, but if they're starting to expand that now into, say, LGBT, uh, this is a serious problem for governments all over the world. 
Either way, it puts them on notice that the dollar is a risky asset, right? Traditionally, the whole selling point of the dollar was that it was good as gold. It was the lowest risk you could have. This is where you can park your money and feel good about it. That, I think, is changing. And now countries are they're diversifying into anything else. They're diversifying into gold, uh, into euro and yen, which have, um, I believe, their market share of global reserves is up at least 50%. Uh, possibly double since uh, we goofed around with the Russian Central Bank. They're diversifying into hard assets. So, for example, China is plowing a lot of money into uh, these uh, sort of resource for money deals in Africa where, you know, they might get like a 20-year contract with the country of Angola uh, to get oil provided at a, at a given price. So countries are fleeing the dollar overall. And, you know, the magnitudes of what the Fed is trying to sell. So we're looking at something like $10 trillion dollars worth of bonds that either have to be refinanced or newly issued because of, of uh, deficits this year. For perspective, the entire American banking system has about 20 trillion. All right, so half that amount is coming out in debt this year. If foreigners don't want it, <laughs> who the heck is going to buy? Right, the Fed is already selling, and the Fed has to sell. They're, they're selling down um, their treasuries because they're trying to reduce inflation. Uh, the inflation rate is much more important for the Fed, uh, you know, because they know that their game is to, you know, create as much inflation as possible without voters getting upset. They know that they're graded on the inflation rate, right? So if Treasury is coming to them and saying, look, we're having these terrible auctions, it is not a given that the Fed is going to save in, step in and save the day. The Fed might prefer to say, well, look, you know, our job is to uh, take care of inflation. You guys have to, you know, take care of your own fiscal house. It's all going to depend on how the Fed thinks that's going to play. Like, in a sense, you almost look at it as two different political parties competing, right? You have the Fed selling their narrative. You have Treasury selling their narrative. So if investors don't know how that kind of game is going to pan out, right, if they don't know whether, you know, if you've got $10 trillion in debt that the world doesn't want uh, and you've got no guarantee that the Fed is going to step in and save the day with the trillion-dollar money printers, that is going to make investors nervous. Now, so far, we've seen something like a quarter point or half percent premium uh, on bonds coming from this risk. But, you know, there's a quote from Ray Kurzweil. Uh, he talks about any exponential process, 1% is halfway there. Okay, so by the time that you actually start seeing worries about sovereign debt start surfacing to the point that they're actually bumping interest rate, that's a big deal. Even if it's a quarter point, that is a very big deal. That's something that we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. It, it, it feels like Powell is kind of intentionally trying to, to be sort of the bad cop in terms of some of this political, uh, uh, cultural stuff. I know he's pushed back against kind of the environmentalist agenda. There's been pushes from Elizabeth Warren, is, I think, has, has made a, a push to try to get this included into the Fed's mandate. There's been other uh, parts of that. Um, and some of them could have been um, you know, if Biden wanted replaced uh, a Powell uh, a couple of years ago, I mean, the, the, the sort mm -hmm. of people that he would replace him with, and conceivably, if you do not have, if you have a you know, Democrat win the election in 2024, the sort of people that could be taking over the Fed are precisely the sort of people that want to lean into you know more of these you know, environmentalist issues, the the cultural issues, and things like that, which would only um, amplify this issue. You know, Powell was throwing sure. out environmental activists and even get a little vulgar. Uh, I think last week, uh, a rare, rare moment of rooting for, for Jay Powell there. Um, but of course, the other side of it is this, the, 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 the payments on the debt. Um, you know, now, you know, people are actually starting to talk about it, which is you know, besides right. just our circle. So that's a step in the right direction. And we have a, uh, had a blog 
post on Power and Market this week from um, uh, Mike Meharry with uh, uh, Shift Gold that highlighted that um, payment on the uh, interest payments on the debt uh, exceeded military spending as well as yeah. uh, a Medicare and Medicaid spending. And looking ahead, um, I've seen estimates that you know, roughly half of all outstanding treasuries will mature by the end of 2025. And obviously, the, you know, the, the, the rates that they were getting then are going to be you know, perceivably um, you know, much higher when those uh, treasuries come to maturity in the future. So, th so that, that additional element to the geopolitical uncertainty, to the fact that Congress, um, you know, as we see with yet another clean CR, has absolutely no willingness um, to even get things back to where we were physically before COVID, uh, much less anything more restricting than that. Um, seems like there's kind of a perfect storm out there um, with the U.S. kind of dead in the center. Yeah, and that's the um, sort of Bob Higgs uh, model, you know, crisis and Leviathan. And every single crisis uh, tends to grow government. It might at best go back, you know, it might retrace half uh, of the original jump. And we've seen that not just in wars, um, you know, that was uh, the focus of Bob. Uh, we saw that in the 2008 crisis. We saw it now with COVID. My sort of meta concern here is that Washington and maybe many governments in the world, they have come to understand that crises are actually like a lot of fun for them, right? Our traditional assumption is that governments try to avoid crises, right? They try to keep the economy on an even keel. They try to not let 10 million people, uh, unvetted uh, people invade the country. Um, they try not to talk up respiratory pandemics, right? They try to you know, cut them off at the root and uh, make sure people don't get hurt. Uh, I think that we're starting to see evidence that, that actually, on the contrary, they're trying to spin these things up. Uh, we saw it with the Ukraine conflict, where it seems almost like the U.S. government was trying to move us towards some kind of nuclear conflict. And it's weird, because traditionally, we kind of trusted these guys to be adults about such things. And my concern is that Washington has learned the lessons that crises are one hell of a lot of fun. Uh, in 2008, everybody got a raise, right? If you look at regulations, for example, you can do a chart of regulations year by year, and going to, and, and you've got all kinds. You've got uh, labor and safety, environmental, uh, financial, okay, you got all kinds of food. And when you do a chart of regulations and then you look at 2008, it's, I mean, something just like the sun came out and shone on all of government. Every single regulation leapt in 2008, even the environmental stuff. And by all accounts, no matter how you vote, 2008 crisis was not about the environment. Okay, you would expect, yes, financial regulations would increase, but all of it increased across the board. Uh, we saw this during the wars. I was living in D.C. when, uh, during the, you know, when the war on terror started. And it was amazing to me. Like, they were putting up, um, uh, what is it, uh, like uh, statues at the Air Force and they were upgrading all the walls around, uh, you know, cemeteries and around monuments. And I was like, we're, we're at war. Like, you know, why are you building sculptures? <laughs> like, don't you need money for the war? Um, but apparently, no, that's not how it works, right? It's this perverse, like every time there's a crisis, everybody gets paid in government. And so my concern is that at this point, um, the uh, Washington certainly is no longer actually trying to head off crises. It's no longer trying to reduce them. It's actually jumped on the other side now. It's trying to take any excuse 
and pump that up. You know, if you look at the number of countries that we have active duty military stationed in, it starts to look like a venture capitalist, right? Where, you know, you're putting little bets all over the world because you're hoping one of them might pay off and turn into a real war. Uh, I think it's a huge concern. And, you know, Tho, going to your earlier point about Powell um, not really being on board with, uh, you know, the green stuff and whatnot, I think the arguably the biggest concern when it comes to the Federal Reserve and future inflation is that Powell is kind of the best we'll get. You know, like people who dream of, of another Paul Volcker, Powell is the closest we're going to come to a Paul, to, to a Paul Volcker. Like, après Louis le déluge, I mean, after Paul, Powell goes, it, it, I mean, it's all downhill from here. You've got absolute lunatics who are going to take over the place. And so, you know, when people, for example, when they look at the last time that we were in this kind of situation, the 1970s, a lot of people, I think, put too much faith in the fact that the 70s did end, right? The stagflation of the 70s lasted about eight years in total because Paul Volcker ended it. But the thing is, looking at it in, you know, methodological individualism, so looking at it from the perspective of the people who actually uh, made those decisions, Paul Volcker was a catastrophic mistake for Washington, right? He cost his inflationist boss, Jimmy Carter, his job. He ended the almost 50-year near monopoly by Democrats of the Senate. That was like, um, you know, the first breach in the wall of Byzantium that brought down the whole thing after that. So he was an absolute catastrophe for Washington. He saved the country, yes, but everybody who had a hand in appointing Volcker got punished for it. So what lesson is Washington going to take from the next time? The next time, they're just going to run with it. They've got you know, an even more sycophantic media at this point who's going to gaslight and sugarcoat and hide anything. They are going to run straight off the cliff next time. I think the question that... <clears throat> people ask then is going back a bit to the uh, the sale of debt the demand for treasuries you you touched on this a little bit is that the fed can't be guaranteed to to make up any difference um right but the the, the question that some listeners might have is well, why can't they anymore? Why are they suddenly worried about inflation? Let's look back at 2008, right? right? The Fed bought up trillions of dollars of assets, and a ton of it was treasuries. A lot of it was mortgage bank securities, right. too. But a ton of it was treasuries. That kept interest rates low. That kept, even though the government was, as you, as you pointed out, uh, spending went just uh, went through the roof. But it was no problem. We could just keep keep rolling out more and more deficits and debt. And if there was any surplus, the Fed would just buy it up to keep the interest rate low. So why not just do that in the year 2023? Um, and you hinted this in this article in your article, and I note this too, right? Is that oh well, what was the inflation rate in 2008, 2009? Right. It never took off, right. and it never even did in 2020 right. either. So just keep. Just keep printing then, but then suddenly it finally caught up with us and price inflation became a problem. Um, and as we've both noted, the only reason they care about that is right. because the public might get really mad. And I've claimed yeah. that if there's any like just hard and fast law of social science, it's that when inflation rates go up really high, regimes tend to get overthrown and things don't go well right. for the regime. And that seems to be the only reason right. now is they're constrained by the realities of price inflation. 
Um, but why not have nonstop crises? If you're still in a 2020 mindset, why not just keep pushing up crises all the time? Because the mindset in 2020 right. was, sure, lock down the economy. Oh, well, people might not like that. That's okay. Bribe them, as you put it in your article. Bingo. Or yep. uh, as I put it, just make lockdowns politically palatable by just giving people free money. Oh, right. yeah, lockdowns is no big deal. Look, yeah. I got all this free money. Um, oh, right. there's a, you want to give a $500 billion, which they haven't reached that point yet, but uh, why not give half a trillion to Ukraine? Just print the money. Right. You want to send more money to Israel? Yep. Just print the more money. So why wouldn't you want wars everywhere? Why wouldn't you want lockdowns everywhere? It's no problem. You just give people free money. But maybe we finally reach the end game of that. Uh, is, is inflation really finally the message to these people that they just can't pump up crises forever? But will they get that message? How long before someone figures that out? Right. Yeah, and you know the beauty of using the crises that way is that you've got your built-in scapegoats, right? So you know, I mean, we saw it just for the past three years in living color. So every single crisis that was driving the inflation, they then turn around and they blame the crisis. They say it's crazy what's going on with Mr. Putin and with the, you know, with uh, the COVID, and you know, so every single crisis that they engender. Um, I, I mean, I have no doubt that, uh, you know, they're going to pull global warming next. So, I mean, they've been working on that for a long time. So, you know, why is inflation taking off? Why? It's the global warming. So, you know, they spend trillions of dollars to address global warming, which they do, by the way. It's, it's, it's stunning how much money goes into the global warming uh, scam. Uh, and then they get to turn around and, you know, all of the marketing materials that they used to get uh, to allow themselves to you know fund the crisis in the first place, they then recycle all that stuff as the scapegoats. The excuse is why inflation is up, or why um, you know why the economy is growing slower. You know, see, it's the global warming. This is you know this is slowing growth. Uh, it is quite. I think the only surprising thing is why the penny didn't drop earlier, or maybe it did. I mean, maybe that was you know World War One. Um, you know, maybe maybe this has been going on for a long time, uh, and you know, for a while there, media might have performed some sort of uh, watchdog role. But of course, you know, certainly since I think uh, Obama came in, the media. Uh, the sort of the memo went out and, you know, they have very little pretense to objectivity. I, mean, I think what probably happened there is just that they realized that they were losing the audience uh, to social media and to the Internet in general. So they said, OK, we have to choose a side. Uh, playing down the middle isn't going to work. And so, you know, the media went full in. And then decision makers really all over the world, uh, once they realized that the watchdog was dead, uh, they absolutely went to town. And, you know, we saw that during COVID, what remaining watchdogs existed, which were very, very few, you know, the kinds of guys that were arguing against lockdowns, it's not like you had half the newspapers or a third of the newspapers arguing against this stuff, right? I mean, it was, it was you know, fringe, relatively fringe voices. Uh, and then at that point, you can shut them down, right? Because, you know, if you're trying to shut down half the newspapers in the country, the other half newspapers might uh, get involved and say, no, you can't do this. And then you lose the public relations battle. and Everybody gets to call you a... Uh, bad names. Uh, but in this case, you know, once they've kind of got a consensus in the mainstream media that they can distort reality, uh, you know, in this case for clicks, uh, they could go ahead and try to finish off the rest of it. So I think we're in a very dangerous place. I think that the degree to which governments can 
use crises to grow their power and just do it right out in the open, literally inviting nuclear war. Uh, I think that's very, very concerning. Well, and to, and to go to the point just the, on how depressing the situation is, I mean, it, you one point uh, that, that goes against um, you know, Ryan's uh, uh, scenario there of inflationary regimes being punished by the people, you know, we saw in the midterms where the Democrats, I mean, obviously, yeah. again, being able to use the scapegoats that you mentioned, um, the Democrats overperformed in the midterms. Um, it's very possible, I mean, particularly if you have the opposition candidate literally behind bars come uh, 2024, that the political situation could get to the point where there is no consequence for this inflationary environment. And it's not that difficult to see. I mean, if you look at the president's already set with COVID, that you know, some, you know, some, some combination of a central bank digital currency providing some sort of UBI dynamic, uh, the confiscation of housing, right, with rent moratoriums alike, where you know, once inflation gets to the extent where you know, the, the money that you're, you're, you can directly provide people does not make up for the assets, the, the goods mm -hmm. that they are seeking for, that you know, the, the infringement upon property rights um, you know, within a, a prolonged uh, you know, Democrat government um, could go out the window. Again, we, we've seen this play out in 2020 uh, in, during COVID. Um, you know, we can see bolstering, uh, trying to go after the food supply, and you, know, you had Trudeau threatening grocery stores over mm -hmm. inflation. And so, you know, the, the, the underlying frameworks here is that, you know, it's, it's very possible that you have a population right now where the percentage of the, comp of the country that is willing to prioritize their economic well-being over this cultural zeitgeist um, has really been challenged. I mean, we, we've seen that there's a lot more people motiva motivated by voting for uh, concerns over abortion rights than $5 gasoline. And if you have a public that is willing to go along with that, then the checks on this inflationary period could very easily lead to greater and greater nationalization of the real economy. Um, as a result to it, and, and you know, the, with plenty of crises worked in um, to, to justify all of this. We, we need economic justice, and therefore everyone gets, right. uh, you know, doesn't have to pay their rent or gets rid of their mortgage or uh, you know, has a, access to an ever-growing supply of government cheese. And I, I think that's a very realistic situation here that America really hasn't faced in quite some time. Yeah, and you know, empirically, if we look at COVID, uh, something like you know, 20% of the population is up for grabs. They're extremely cheap to buy. Uh, you can get an overwhelming majority with that. You know, we saw that during the lockdowns where a lot of people were surprised that Americans would go for these kinds of totalitarian restrictions. Like for a while there, you could not hold a religious service, which had not been true since 1648 Westphalia. I mean, that was, that was shocking. Like, uh, you know, if somebody had asked you that beforehand, you would have said, no, that's insane. They're not going to ban religious services. What planet are you living on? Um, but it turns out that it's fairly cheap to buy, you know, enough of the population that uh, you can then make politicians interested in going down that path. And then, of course, if you have a compliant media, uh, then, you know, they can portray themselves as saving grandma by banning church services. And somehow there's significant people a significant number of people who buy that. And the end result is that essentially they break it so they can take it over. Uh, we know from, you know, for example, if you take food, so if Mr. Trudeau doubles down and actually goes after the grocery stores, well, you know, at some point grocery stores will stop operating. Uh, it's happening in a lot of uh, U.S. cities for different reasons because of the uh, decline in uh, public order. But at any rate, um, you know, Chicago has already floated the idea of government running grocery stores. Uh, and I think that was absolutely 
essential in that process is, you know, like when we talk about what's the existential uh, question, it is free speech because people are going to get angry as those things happen. If Chicago is running the grocery stores, there will be food shortages in Chicago. There's going to be a number of problems. There'll be rotten food, you name it. Um, you know, corruption, embezzlement, up and down the line. Uh, I joked in a recent video that uh, it's probably more efficient that they just skip the whole store thing and just park the trucks in the parking lot wide open, uh, <laughs> save everybody the trouble of actually having to steal it, uh, <laughs> you know, on a retail level. Um, but there's going to be a ton of anger. And at that point, you know, we saw it during COVID where these governments were imposing these totalitarian restrictions and governments and media sort of united together to reframe it as, no, no, it's not the government who's, you know, uh, not allowing religious uh, meetings. No, no, it's the unvaccinated. You know, because they are risking all of our deaths, they are the ones, they are your oppressors. Um, it's very, very effective if you can censor the opposition. Uh, so I think that that is the single, it's, in a sense, it's an opportunity, right? They're, they're turning up the water and there's some point that the frog jumps. But if they're able to um, monopolize speech, then the frog is not going to understand that it's hot. He's going to interpret that as something else. Perhaps they'll convince him that it's much, much hotter if you jump. You know, they'll show him pictures of fire surrounding the pot and he'll never jump. So I think that is um, existentially important. Well, looking at it from a, a different dynamic, um, also kind of looking at the political uh, factors there, you, know, you started off uh, the show kind of talking about the, the populist response to debt levels in Greece. And hey, look, you know, there's this free pile of money here by simply repudiating the debt. And you, you've got your, your, re your ready-made group of boogeymen of you know, Wall Street and foreign investors and the like. Um, you know, do, do you see any, any growing appetite for anything nearing any sort of, of levels of debt repudiation as a response to this? Obviously, Rothbard wrote in great length on, on this in some of his work, mm -hmm. but do you, do you see any, I mean, again, given, given that there seems to be no political, uh, get it, you know, new Speaker of the House, nothing seems to change, um, you know, Republicans you know, have a narrow majority there. Do, do you see any, any appetite for someone kind of, you know, you know, Trump obviously had four years, didn't do it, you know, you know, but a, a Trump-like figure um, kind of cutting that Gordian knot by a, you know, taking seriously something like debt repudiation. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I was surprised by a lot of things that Trump did that I did not expect the president to do in my lifetime, you know, threatening to pull out of NATO, for example, or being against the wars. Um, so never say never, um, but I do think that you've, voters have to feel like um, the debt actually has consequences before um, they're really going to plunk for somebody like that, because repudiation does cause uh, disruption in the short term. Sure. The media will no doubt talk that up. We see that every, every debt ceiling fight. Um, and until voters actually feel like that debt is real, uh, they're going to continue doing what they do, which is, you know, I don't know, 70, 80% of them say, you know, let, let's not upset the apple cart. Uh, and, you know, the Democrats are clearly not going to <laughs> impose austerity. Um, uh, Republicans at this point, you know, going by Trump anyway, um, he's not going to impose austerity anyway. I can sympathize why you don't do that, right? It's sort of like single-handedly disarming yourself when the other guy can still buy votes. So I do sympathize that it is not in a candidate's interest um, to try to sell austerity. Uh, but it does make me think that until external events force austerity in the nation, in other words, until that risk premium on federal debt rises a lot higher than it is today, 
I think we don't get anything approaching austerity. And until that happens, I don't think voters are really going to care about it. Yeah, and there has to be real talk in the media about real cuts to social programs and defense that's driven by the need to pay debt service. And just to kind of to, to create a very simplified model of how that would have to look, let's imagine that the federal government is in six pieces. And uh, so you've got like social security, you've got all the health costs, you've got uh, defense, and you've got, uh, let's say, oh, other poverty relief stuff. And then you've got interest on the debt. Um, Is that all six of them? (laughs) You have major components of the federal budget, and then you have the debt service. So let's just say it's about six trillion total. Well. As time goes on, the more of that you have to devote to debt service, you're got to find that money somewhere. And so you would have right. to, to see a situation where the current debt continues to eat up the rest of that pie. And we're only just now starting to see that happen, right? right? We've seen that debt service, that interest paid on the debt has skyrocketed in recent recent months and quarters, even adjusted for inflation. Historically, it's at just off mm-hmm. the charts levels. And in terms of real dollar terms, it's now over $900 billion. And it, I think it just even really in the current quarter has crossed about a trillion dollars. So what you're saying is that now you're spending, just as, as Tho pointed out, you're spending a trillion dollars just to keep the debt going, to avoid defaulting on the debt. And that's as much as you're paying to say, if we simplify Social Security or Medicare um, or defense spending. And at, well, what happens then when you've got to spend $2 trillion just to avoid right. defaulting on the debt? Well, where are you going to get that money? Well, you could raise taxes. You could... Uh, also, I suppose, print more money then by having the Fed buy up more stuff, but that's going to drive more inflation. That's politically problematic when your starting point is, say, 4% inflation. Uh, or you right. can cut you can cut spending on Social Security. You can cut spending on the military. You can cut spending on Medicare. Well, how popular is that going to be? So now all of a sudden, right. the... The, 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 the federal government is faced with, okay, you can default, which, of course, the people who control Congress don't want them to do that. That's the bankers. That's Wall Street. That's people who depend a lot on getting that money. Um, and even some regular people, too, would be screwed by default, like pension funds and things like that. For sure. So yep. now the, what are their choices? Their choices are, okay, the more indirect method of just defaulting, or we can just straight up start cutting everybody's Social Security checks. That's when people start to go crazy. But nobody's talking about cutting your Social Security check yet. Nobody's talking about cutting Medicare or even defense spending. So I just don't see that is even being on the radar of most people. They're just not facing any real cuts to social benefits or to any of their pet projects. So for now... The idea of repudiating the debt just seems totally unnecessary to most people, I would imagine. Yep. Exactly. And that's why things like uh, debt auction mechanics are interesting, because if those start to break, right, the absolute um, painless way uh, to handle rising debt interest is that you just increase the deficit, right? You just, you just borrow more. So it goes from $1 trillion to $2 trillion. Okay, well, then instead of a $2 trillion deficit, we're going to have a $3 trillion deficit. No problem. Easy peasy. Uh, if your debt is actually being bought up or if your Federal Reserve is willing to soak it all up. 
And so that, you know, fundamentally, if the, if the debt auctions break down, then all eyes turn to the Fed. The Fed is currently selling off, I think it's $95 billion a month, which is a, that's a fairly high amount of debt to be rolling off. They're not selling, they're rolling it off, so they're letting it mature, and then they don't rebuy it. Uh, so the Fed is definitely in the getting rid of debt game. Uh, if auction mechanics break down, if the Fed's not willing to play ball, then the last man standing is exactly that. You've got either tax hikes uh, or you've got spending cuts. The uh, you know rich have very, very competent lobbyists. Uh, Washington for years has been trying to equalize the tax rate on uh, so-called carried interest, which is the way that hedge fund managers get paid to no avail. Um, you know, they will fight tooth and nail. They can take care of themselves. Uh, so that's a tough, um, you can only squeeze so much blood out of the rich uh, before they fight back. And then, you know, the rest of the people, of course, that's an easy way to, to, to lose an election to suggest raising taxes on middle class uh, or poor people. I mean, they do it all the time, but they do it sneaky, all right? If you actually come out front and center and say, yep, we're going to squeeze another trillion out of you, which is, I mean, that's a substantial chunk of what they already take in, in, uh, in income tax, right? That, that would be massive hikes. Uh, you might have to double the rates that regular people pay, 25 30%. Uh, so, you know, at that point, the spending cuts come in, right? So uh, each party would go after the pet policies of the other side. So Democrats presumably would try to cut military spending. Republicans would try to um, cut welfare spending. That's when it starts to get real for people. And then at that point, that opportunity opens for some entrepreneur, political entrepreneur, to come in and, and, and suggest uh, walking away from the debt. All right. Well, with that, we should wrap up this episode of Radio Rothbard. Thank you to uh, our guests, Peter St. Oh, should I? Uh, it sounds like Tho has something to say. Well, I just, I just want to mention that uh, if anyone in our audience wants to sign up for uh, uh, Peter's newsletter, which I highly recommend, um, they can do so at uh, profstange.com. That's uh, P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E.com. We'll have a link to it in our show notes. Thank you for that, though. I appreciate it. Yep. <laughs> hey, you know, I got to get, get the pitch in. <laughs> Love it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Radio Rothbard. We will be back uh, next week, as usual, with another episode. Thank you to our guest, Peter, and uh, we'll see you next time.